Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roden, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with the student life editor, Sarah Roach, to talk about S.J. Matthews, the student association newly elected president. So S.J. won on Thursday, but her competitor, Justin Diamond, had a lot of conversations going. He had a lot of people supporting him. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of conversation and dialogue he generated on campus? So Justin Diamond first launched a couple weeks ago, so it was a few days before the initial election, and he ran on a on a promise to abolish the essay and to, and use his $15,000 scholarship that is allocated to the Student Association president and redistribute it to student organizations. And so the first week he gained a lot of traction, especially on the memes page, and on his own campaign account, he had a lot of live streams, um, and a lot of students came out and, and voted for him in that first week, and he got more the, the highest percentage of the vote. And when he went into the runoff, um, the conversation sort of shifted a little bit because more student organizations who were in support of the essay and did not want to see the essay be abolished um, were sort of coming out and saying, well, the essay actually maybe has its flaws, but here are some of the things that it has done. And that's where you see organizations like Program Board and Class Council that have never endorsed a candidate ever endorse Matthews for for SA president. So the conversation has sort of shifted in the last couple of weeks that Diamond has launched his campaign and he did not win the presidency, Matthews won, so, but he still sort of wants to continue this dialogue going into his next year because he got enough write-in votes to be an Elliott School Senator. With his the questions that Diamond brought up, how is the incoming essay leadership planning to address those or take care of the issues that people are having with the essay? S.J. Matthews, Amy Martin, who's the executive vice president-elect, and Diamond himself in his capacity as a senator, they're sort of going about this transparency accessibility to the essay issue in a few different ways. Diamond still wants to carry on this conversation of um, do we abolish the essay? Should we abolish the essay? And he wants to start a merchandise line in which he would sell shirts, pins, stickers with different phrases on them, like abolish the essay and other things that had to do with his campaign. Um, he wants to put on those items. And then the the profit that he would make from that merchandise would be donated to what he says are underfunded student organizations. He said he doesn't have um, an idea of which student organizations he would donate to, um, but that's sort of like his line of thinking. When we spoke with Amy Martin, she said... She wants to start holding workshops for elected senators to sort of understand how to write legislation and sort of know what the Senate does during its meetings so that's not left up in the air when you, when senators go into it next year and when they're first starting off um, so they can sort of hit the ground running right when they get started next year. And then S.J. Matthews, something just to note about her campaign is that she ran on sort of a... A, a platform to increase transparency in the essay. She, as an out, essay outsider, she's currently the Residence Hall Association president, so she she said that she recognized, you know, the essay doesn't, from an outsider perspective, students don't really notice what the essay does or, or know how it works. Um, and so going into next year, she wants to create a tab on the Student Association website to track all of the platform points that she ran on for essay president and then each time she meets with an administrator each time there is something that she did that is like a step toward accomplishing one of her goals then she would update the website so that students are, are informed on sort of what steps she has taken to, to make sure that her, um, her platform points come together. Does she know when that's going to launch? 
Um, she wants to launch it like as soon as she's elected. I mean, that the transition starts over the next couple of months, so it would ideally start by like the end of the beginning of next semester. So, what did current student association leadership have to say about this election? As President Ashley Lee said that she she didn't necessarily say how the current essay sh- could do anything better. I mean, she said reaching out to more students in more of a non-traditional way. Like currently, the essay mainly uses um, its essay Twitter account or its essay Facebook page. But something that that she had mentioned was that Diamond was reaching out to people through places like the memes page or overheard at GW, which is not a place that the essay would ever look to promote their initiatives or let students know what they're doing. And she said that she was open to a conversation on on maybe finding a way to incorporate some of her initiatives or some of the essay's initiatives onto those platforms. But she said if she, if she had another year in the essay, something that she would do is hold more community hours rather than office hours. So some senators and the executive vice president and president of the essay were required to hold office hours once a week for their constituents and she said instead of doing office hours she would do community hours which means she would be going out into different places on campus like Thurston Hall or Kogan the Multicultural Student Services Center and other areas on campus um, to talk with students and so that they wouldn't come to them. Thanks for talking to us about this Sarah. Yeah thanks for having me. I'm here with staff writer Paige Morse who has a story this week about an update uh, from the Food Insecurity Task Force with the Student Association. What's going on? So the Food Insecurity Task Force released a list of nine recommendations to administrators at the end of last month. So basically they're urging administrators to improve dining on campus by building a dining hall on Foggy Bottom and also working with vendors to add more meal deals for students and also having more culturally diverse dining options on the meal plan. How did they come up with these recommendations? They actually released results from a survey that they sent out. In January and February, they sent out the survey. And so they basically just asked students whether or not they experience food insecurity on campus, whether or not they feel that they have access to culturally diverse foods, and also whether or not they would like a dining hall on Foggy Bottom. And so the survey actually found that nearly 60% of students said that they reduced the size of their meals last semester and also 80% of students said that they would utilize a dining hall if one was on Foggy Bottom campus. So J Street closed in 2016 and the way J Street worked was there was like a certain amount of dining dollars like allotted to the dining hall and only 40% of students who took the survey said that they prefer that way of allocating the money where you would have to spend a certain amount at a dining hall if one opened on campus. Um, So the majority of students said that they were not in favor of that. But students weren't in favor of it? Students are in favor of the dining hall. So 80% said they would utilize a dining hall, but then only 40% said that they want like a certain amount of G-World money allocated that you would have to use just at the dining hall. How did officials react to these recommendations? Ashley Lee, the essay president, said that the group met with officials, including Provost Forrest Maltzman, Associate Vice President of Operations Alicia Knight, and Senior Vice Provost for Enrollment in the Student Experience, Lori Kohler. And so they met with those officials, and the officials were open to introducing a dining hall to the Foggy Bottom campus, and that they're going to continue to evaluate the data, um, consider the pros and cons, and other students' opinions before they move forward. But it was a pretty open conversation, according to Ashley Lee. 
now that they've delivered the recommendations, how are they moving forward with this? Izzy Moody, the SA's Vice President of Sustainability, um, she's also a member of the Food and Security Task Force. She basically said that it's up to the university administrators at this point to use this data and make informed suggestions and improvements for the dining plan going forward. She also said that she is hoping that the university will turn the Food and Security Task Force into a more established group called the Food Experience Advisory Committee, which would have students, faculty, and administrators in it. And so she wants to use that committee to continue getting data on the dining at GW and also release a report every two years on the state of dining at GW. Thanks for giving us an update on this task force, Paige. Thank you so much for having me. I'm here with Jared Gans, a staff writer at The Hatchet, who has a story this week about a biology professor who is leaving after nearly 40 years. What can you tell us about the professor? Diana Lipscomb has been at GW for almost four decades. In that time, she has served in a number of capacities, including chair of the biology department and interim dean of the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences. What has been her proudest achievement at GW? She said one of her proudest achievements in her time here has been creating the Weintraub Institute, which allows faculty to work directly with graduate students, and they study organisms at very specific levels. Did she have like a favorite position during, during her time at GW, or one that she enjoyed more? She actually mentioned that every time her service in one of the administrative roles was coming to an end, she repeatedly was looking forward to getting back to just being a professor, but she kept on being asked to take these roles, <laughs> um, which she did accept, but she said teaching itself was always her favorite job here at GW. What did faculty members that she worked with have to say about her? Gustavo Ormiga, who is a professor of biology, said he has known Lipscomb ever since he came to GW two decades ago and that she has really set an example of commitment for teaching students at this university and anyone who will come after her has a very tough example to follow in her absence. Can you kind of describe her teaching style? Hormiga said that she really focuses on individualizing her teaching. In a lab of 25 students, she would sit with each individual an electron microscope and study different specimens under each microscope and ensure that each student understands fully what it is that they're looking at. And he said that is her teaching style of really demonstrating how much she cares about each individual student's learning experience. Thanks for telling us about this story today, Jared. Thanks for having me. I'm here with contributing culture editor Sydney Lee to talk about an up-and-coming rapper who's going to be performing at the pre-spring fling. Can you tell us about him? So the student is a sophomore here, and his name is Noah Shufintinsky, and he goes by the name Young Gravy when he is rapping and producing his songs. So not the Young Gravy that is also like a white rapper, like it's a different guy. No, so that guy is Y-U-N-G, I believe, Gravy, and Noah is Y-O-U-N-G, Gravy. Just to clarify, what is his musical style? Like, what does he what does he rap about? 
So he says that he draws a lot of inspiration from West Coast rap because he's from San Diego, um, but also hip hop and reggae because he listened to a lot of those styles of music growing up. Um, but he raps a lot about his backgrounds, like his Jewish and his black identity. What kind of stuff has he produced recently? So he dropped an EP in October of last year called Ethnic. He talked to me a lot about the songs from that EP, and he's actually going to be performing a few of them at Prefling. So the first song in that EP is called Never Again, and he talks about how society always says never again after a tragedy happens, but it doesn't actually make a change. So he delves into a societal commentary about that. And then the last song in the EP is called Stereotypes, and he uses the song to talk about all the stereotypes that are placed on Jewish and black people and he creates this kind of fake character taking on all those stereotypes and what that character would be like if they conform to all those societal stereotypes and by the end of the song you can see how ridiculous the character would be. So does he have his own studio? How does he produce his music? So he actually does all of his recording and producing himself in his bedroom or his dorm here and he has his own microphones and then he uses Logic Pro X on his laptop to mix and produce every single song. Does he Has he performed in other places before? Yeah, he said he's performed at Velvet Lounge for GW Hillel and he performs a lot back home in San Diego too. Does he have any uh, any music that is like more on like the lighter side that is just kind of like for fun? Yeah, he definitely does music that isn't as serious and it's more for just fun and stuff you can definitely listen to at parties and just to hype up a crowd. What was his reaction to being chosen for Preflink? He said he was beyond excited to perform because for him being able to showcase his art to the public is all part of the creative process, he said. So he's actually closing out Preflink and um, the program board director, Charlotte Lewis, said that she's super excited to have him because he's going to hopefully bring a hype environment to the crowd before they announce the artist for Spring Fling. So he's going to be able to get everyone excited for that. Thanks for coming to talk to us today. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editors Sydney Lee and Lindsay Pollan. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Ulk Studio. Special thanks to Jared Gans, Paige Morse, and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.